This is the greatest challenge of our lives. It's not about saving polar bears. It's not about saving whales. You know, I love both of those animals. Conservation and sustainability is about saving our own asses because we've screwed it up. Welcome to this week's show, and I'm really just absolutely happy, thrilled, warmed up to have my great friend Ian Summerhalder on the show this week. Thank you, Ian. Also co-creator. Little brother. <laughs> my little brother, uh, co-creator, co-host of the series. Ian, tell me about when we met or our first great adventure. There are very few people in my life that don't know this, this, this story. I went down to Marathon, Florida to dive with one of the most respected and loved oceanographers in the world. And after many, many flights and getting down to Wyland's house, <laughs> yeah. or no, I had just come from Barbados, and I had just been signing my UN ambassador uh, right. paperwork with the um, Undersecretary General, Dr. Akeem Steiner, who unfortunately has moved on, but mm -hmm. he's an amazing uh, uh, Spartan for incredible global change. I flew from Barbados with this like bottle of 50-year-old rum. I remember that. And you and me <laughs> and Dr. Sylvia Earle sat yep. in Wyland's kitchen um, with our host at sipping rum till mm -hmm. one in the morning talking um, to two of the most phenomenal names in oceans in the history of science sitting there with me looking at Wyland's art and sipping this 50-year-old rum. I'll never forget that mm -hmm. ever in my life. And also, too, what was so amazing about that, your understanding and position based in science is completely different than her understanding and position based all in science. And the two of you coming together, I don't know who has ever seen that in that intimate of a setting. <laughs> The next following morning, we suited up and went to see Fabien Cousteau in 65 feet of water in an underground research facility. Underwater, yeah. I mean, an underwater research yeah. facility where the air was so thick. Remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. We couldn't whistle. You when could, you go to yeah. whistle, the air is actually, it's so thick because of the nitrogen? No, the pressure. I mean, the, oh, it's the pressure. It's three times the pressure of what we're in right now. And we can only be down there for, I think, 59 minutes. Mm -hmm. Because after that, well, they were doing 31 days down there. Right. But you and I jumped in the oceans, and you took me on this, the, one of the most amazing adventures I'd ever been on. And we popped up in that, in that pod, uh, 65 feet under the water, and you told me to take off my regulator, which when you're in that kind of water, I did. And it's almost like you're in an outer body experience, yet you've never been more present. Because when you realize that above you is 60 feet of ocean water, mm. and you're there with this group of scientists that are only there to make the world and our understanding of the oceans a better place. We were there together and experiencing that with you solidified our relationship. It was a shame that we could only be down there for 59 minutes. And unfortunately, you and I never got to set up a trip to go back there even for, because I think you have to either be down there for 59 minutes or like a week, right? There's no in between. Yeah, yeah, it's called saturation diving. Right. And after 12 hours, the body saturates with nitrogen. You can't absorb any more and then you can stay for as long as you want. 
But when you come back, you've got to go through a very slow decompression process. So if we had stayed longer and come to the surface rapidly, we would have died. So right. we only had a very short window to visit those guys. Yeah, I mean, that experience, uh, you know, for me, that experience set off this sort of partnership and sort of like obsession that you and I had with finding something that we could uh, fuse and sort of galvanize our collective sort of ethos. Well, you, you know, Ian, you really, uh, you impressed me because That's very we had met, I don't know, a few months before that, a year, I can't remember, a year before that, and you said you wanted to work on this stuff, and I said, a lot of people come to me and say that. I met yeah. you at the CI board yeah. meetings yeah, in, that's in right. uh, Seattle. And you came up to me and you said you wanted to help, you wanted to work, and I, I get a lot of people say that, but very few people carry through. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. So when I called you up and said, hey, can you, would you, can you, you were right there, yeah, and, you, and you, you boosted the popularity of that mission. You brought the ocean to many thousands of people more that wouldn't have gotten it. That was fun. And you did a challenging dive. You know, it was, it was, quite, it was quite a remarkable dive, so thank you for that. Thank you. And um, so we started our, our, our friendship, which has become like the most important part for me, yeah, but also our, our professional work to save the oceans together. That was it. It was almost like a baptism, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we, it was our baptism. <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a baptism. <laughs> 60 feet underwater in Florida. Yeah, exactly. And um, since then, we've done a, done a lot of things, and you have really accelerated things. But I want to know, As you're you from Louisiana. Been. Yeah. You're from Louisiana. Deep in the bayou. Yeah, tell me about, your, tell me about the ocean and the water and your early, what's your first memory of the ocean? I mean, how, what role did it play in your, in your life? Well, you know, it's funny. First and foremost, I'll also never forget that. So thank you. I'll never forget what you just said. Um, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, especially from down where I am from, you grew up on the Gulf of Mexico, which is arguably one of the single most beautiful bodies of water in the world, responsible mm -hmm. for one-sixth of the world's uh, oxygen, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's muddy, it's murky, There's, it's very shallow, there's thousands of little islands everywhere, but where I grew up was on Lake Pontchartrain that empties out into what is basically, there's two passes that open up into a smaller lake, which is Lake Catherine, that open up into Lake Bourne, which basically... They're not really lakes because they're not landlocked. Lake Bourne, effectively, is the Gulf of Mexico. I grew up on 35,000 acres of virgin marsh. My poor mother, our backyard was a four or five foot path of oyster shells and then bayou. No fence, no nothing. Imagine raising three kids with no no protection of them falling in the water but we grew up we grew up safe and we grew up happy we had very little means uh by you know governmental social standards we were absolutely at the poverty line you were yeah oh beyond wow. but <clears throat> in louisiana and those areas you can be at the poverty line and you can live the richest life in the world because all of the shrimp, Louisiana blue crab, 
the speckled trout, the redfish, the amberjack, the freshwater bass, everything comes out of the water. So from the get-go, you recognize the balance of where your food comes from. And then my, all my families, my uncles and dad and everyone, um, when we were kids, they were all hunters. Mm. So all the ducks and geese and all the wild animals were harvested for food. and Everything was eaten. So was the ocean almost like your refrigerator? It was our source of life. You, you go to the ocean instead of the refrigerator for your food. It was the source yeah. of life. Yeah. And in the 80s, when I was a kid, Lake Pontchartrain, this is the, this is, again, we're always going to keep this positive, but these are the things you think about when you say, mankind is literally insane. When I was young, Lake Pontchartrain was a dying lake because they dredged the lake over and over. They dredged it, dredged it, dredged it for shells, all sorts of stuff. When you dredge, you effectively completely destroy the ecosystem. And I want to say, and you would correct me on this because you are the science master, an area in the oceans, I think, a year, half the size of Texas is basically dredged a year around mm -hmm. the world. Yep. Growing up in that respect, where my parents, both my father and my mother, we understood the balance of life. So what you take, you effectively, you have to give back, right? That's why there's certain seasons of certain types of fish and there are limits and there's, you can't keep certain fish a certain size. There's, there's respect for how things reproduce. And if you take too much, they're gone. Look at say orange roughy, right? Yeah. Orange roughy, I think don't mature to sexual maturity until they're 25 or something. And yeah, they live to about 120, 125 years. A little bit older than that. Yeah, and they live right. to be over 100 years old. Right, so if you're... Maybe the oldest one to 220 years, I think, oldest, yeah. There you go. That's when we were fighting for our independence. Right, that's right. So if you take Orange Ruffy at 5 or 10 years old before they're sexually mature, we're effectively just decimating populations. We didn't do that in Louisiana. You, you mean you actually grew up with a, a conservation ethos or not conservation, but a, a sustainability ethos? The, the ethos, the idea of sustainability was not even an idea. It yeah. was an ethos. It was a mandate okay. because without balance, you had no, well, the idea is you had no sustenance. Yeah. So food security is the ultimate reason to conserve. That's right. But if you look at it in the world sphere now in 2018, ooh, 2019, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at it now in 2019, food and food security is one of the biggest issues we have. And what's crazy is, is we waste half of everything we grow and a lot of what we catch. So I am grateful to grow up not having had a silver spoon in my mouth, but have grown up with my feet in the mud um, in Louisiana because, and I'm so thankful to both my mother and my father for instilling that in us, which is our job together today and every day, which is to instill that in the young people going forward. You know, you know, I feel like I'm talking to you know an, I mean? an indigenous cultural person, you know, and you and I have 
mutual friends and contacts, and you know a lot of the work that I do with indigenous cultures that have Absolutely. lived for many thousands of years, and they have this relationship, they have the knowledge. But it, I've never, it's never struck me before. You're talking like an indigenous <laughs> person. And we're wow, all that's interesting. We're that's all indigenous, right? But but you're you're talking about a childhood where you were actually tuned in to the ocean, to the ecosystem. You depended on it, and you you had the, this. This is really quite interesting to me. That's an interesting way you say it. I think the people of Louisiana and Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, all those you know people that live in those very low lying areas. Yeah. Um, sort of long forgotten, except only seen in movies and stuff, um, they would love to hear that because I think they are indigenous. Also, too, you know, my mother is half Choctaw, half Irish. Oh. So her family um, were complete, they were natives, Choctaw Indians. And we can say Indians because we are them. So otherwise, I know there's a lot of strange political correctness that happens now, and so I'm not really yeah. familiar with what it is, but... It's in my blood, I can say it. <laughs> but those native cultures, they, they were indigenous. And when you go back and look at the history, unfortunately, it's gone. Um, the Choctaw assimilated uh, into the white man's world basically to fascist, and they were there. New Orleans, I don't, you know, people don't think about this. This was... This was colonized and settled in the 1600s. I mean, this is right. a long time ago. Right. But when I sit on the shores of Lake Pontchartrain or I sit on the shores of any of the barrier islands, you know, that's the big thing with what's happening in Louisiana right now. These barrier islands are disappearing, which is the barrier between storms and all the populated areas, you know. But when you sit there on the shores of one of those and you're sitting there or you're in a boat and you're drinking your iced tea and you're casting, you know, catching redfish or speckled trout or something and you sit and you look out at this place and you think about how amazing that must have been 250 years ago to be a Choctaw in a, in a dugout, in a canoe, yeah, canoeing, catching fresh speckled trout and crabs and fish, I mean, um, shrimp, and the life these people had. And it's very easy to go back when you're in that space. It's like sitting when you're in the Smoky Mountains or in the Rocky Mountains or you're sitting on the plains in North Dakota. It's very easy for you, but you've got to step out of your urban environment. You've got right. to get off the subway train and get on a plane or go out to the country. You know, we've, we now live, it's like your book, you know, um, this ocean renaissance and how to do it in the age of the algorithm right because the algorithm is now running our lives and it's cool because we get to see places mm -hmm. but experiential learning and experiential activities is really the only way to get people to appreciate it no, and that's it's how we're designed to learn right it's how we're that's how we were designed this, this idea of reading books and having lectures is like just came about if you look at the scope of human history against time it's like you know in the last 10 seconds of our existence you know most of right. our time has been we've been mentored we've had empirical firsthand experiences and this indigenous i'm really fascinated by the fact that you actually have it in your blood and you talk like an indigenous person That's when you when you relate to the environment and you have not forgotten you have not forgotten louisiana and no. the people there i know you've got you, tell me about your 
you've got programs, I believe, that you, you, you work for people that, that maybe didn't have, that, that, that maybe were like you, didn't have doors open to them easily, you know, come from a, a, a well, you use the word, poverty, poverty background. And yeah. what do you do? How do you, how have you, you, I know you've been giving back. You've got a heart, you know, as big as Mars. And you like I really, see. for the planet. Meaning it's far away or it's undiscovered? No, no, it's big. <laughs> Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, listen, this is this thing that we're all now working toward, which is what we were just talking about with Kiribati and yeah. all these islands in the Pacific and South Pacific, actually all over the world. But the small numbers of people are now starting to be heard because we're all now recognizing that their cultures and their way of living, we can all learn a great deal from because they've lived sustainably for so many right. years and they're still living that way. While we're in New York eating hamburgers and, you know, blowing through thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions of gallons of fuel a day, running our SUVs and jets and all this stuff, they're still living this phenomenally full, happy, healthy existence. It's not even an existence, it's a life. So we have a tremendous amount to learn from them. And if we can, and again, this is our job together with the guests on this show and yep. especially with Christine yep. and her connection and your understanding of the science their voices will not only be heard, but their customs, their culture, and their ways will basically be tutelage for us. So we have a lot to learn from those people. But what's crazy is, history is always told by its victors. <laughs> yeah. So you don't hear about all those amazing sustainable ways uh, because they don't fit into, you know, they don't fit into Hamilton's view of what the world, I mean, what this country should have been, you know? You know, it just struck me, I think a big, a fundamental of this is having firsthand knowledge of, of where your food comes from, right. your, your connection to the, to the natural environment. The people in New York or whatever, you know, they, the people there, kids there think, you know, steak comes out of a, a freezer. Right. Or it comes out of a kitchen in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Or the fish comes out of, you know, whatever. Whereas you started this conversation off talking about catching the fish outside your back door right, and bringing it into your house and, and cooking it the same way indigenous cultures do. And that's the first fundamental piece of understanding our relationship to the environment is that this stuff, everything that causes us, enables us to live is dependent on a natural ecosystem. It's dependent on you know, the world functioning. And we've and it's, gotten disconnected from that, whereas you grew up with a connection to it and the indigenous cultures are, are that. So that's, that's, that's principle number one, which I think, I don't think you, I can look at, I can see in your face, you don't, I don't think you even understood that you had it in your, in your blood and in your veins. And um, so you started off there, you, can you just give our listeners, a, a, what happened? How did you, how did you get to where you are now? career-wise, you're, I mean, you're, you're acting-wise. Then I want to get back to your ambassador work with the UN and the, and the work that you've been doing with me and other organizations. But how did, it, how did you get from a, a home with shells in the backyard to being such a, an accomplished um, actor and communicator? I, well, you're, you're super kind. Accomplished, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, working, working um, 
that's been an amazing i felt like i was when you and i were in florida i felt like i was traveling around with the beatles there was a pretty, wherever we went to be a crowd would form that was outside. pretty that was a pretty <laughs> wild time i mean that's the thing media is amazing but it all comes down to one thing which is what we're talking about here story storytellers since the beginning of time whether they were the elders or the shamans, story is what kept culture alive. It's also what allowed and enabled progressive thought, safety, security, intellect, customs, whatever it may be. Stories are how that worked. I mean, story was what kept that alive. That's right. We're now telling stories after story after story after story with these cameras the reason it felt like we were had sort of transported back to the 60s was to the Beatles, which is effectively the resonating storylines that, or sorry, the storylines that resonated with the hearts and minds of people. Because when you break it down, Vampire Diaries was a teen vampire soap opera. I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> let's be really honest. Yeah. But it, well, and Lost. But the, yeah. And Lost. Yeah. Lost Lost was a, on a, in a very different spectrum. That was your breakout. But uh, yes, it was. And yeah. it actually happened to be in Hawaii. Yeah. And Hawaii is one of those places that it wasn't, too, obviously it's tropical and beautiful, but it wasn't too dissimilar to growing up in Louisiana. Because your feet were in the sand, in the mud, you really were experiencing life in a natural environment. But that disconnect you're talking about, yeah. we aim to bridge that gap, right? Yes. We're gonna, we wanna bridge that gap between the disconnect of someone eating a hamburger in New York City to someone who's actually cattle ranching in Texas and what it means to, so when I was a kid, and also too, we've become uh, in the political correctness of the world, people tend to be very angry about people who are harvesting or catching fish or eating, you know, animals out of the sea or the sky or the land. And I, I have a very interesting conversation with these people sometimes, you know, when, um, you know, I used to say my family, you know, unfortunately, when I was a kid, a lot of my family, my, my, my grandparents had a farm, but a lot of my family... They hunted their food because it was actually their food. Yeah. They shot a deer uh, or two or three, and then they carved them up, packaged them, and put them in a freezer. And that's what they ate for the next, the whole family. I'm thinking like, yeah. anywhere between three to 10 people would eat from, say, October to the next October. Yeah. And people would get so up in arms about that. And I'd say, let me ask you a question. Do you eat? Do you eat meat? Do you eat hamburgers or anything? Oh, yeah, I love steak. You go. <laughs> so it just shows me the disconnect that you have that you can go to a restaurant or, say, in New York City into a Whole Foods and mm -hmm. purchase a piece of meat and not think that that was, came from an actual animal or buy a thing of salmon or Dover sole or tuna and not think that that comes from an animal. You're eating an animal. Yeah. So we want to just, we want to, it's a, it's, we found this crazy place where we are animals consuming other animals 
at a great disadvantage to our planet, which we're all freaking out about. And yet we're so distant from where these two spaces are. Yeah. And I'm excited and hopeful. That's the thing. This isn't all doom and gloom. I am hopeful. And so when we felt like we were experiencing and witnessing what the Beatles maybe had gone through was because of story. Yeah. These people, this, these stories resonated in their hearts of these characters. You know, this and is... that's what's fascinating. And it's taken me on this now. Vampire Diaries was, I booked Vampire Diaries in February of 09. So it's 10 years. Yeah. But looking at human behavior over the last 10 years and collecting all of these data sets, right? Just really seeing and being a part of human behavior and watching these sort of patterns. It's been the most fascinating decade of my life. And I've learned more by just being a part of media and story and the entertainment business. And it sounds so self-serving and people would say so disconnected, but entertainment and story is how we're going to change the world. You are absolutely right. And I remember another late night drinking rum with Harrison Ford, you and I. Now, Harrison is a friend of ours and has done Harrison's a lot of work man. in this area of communication and conservation. I remember him putting his hand on your shoulder and saying, Ian, it's up to you now. Yeah. Now, he wasn't like, Harrison's still very active and everything. But he Harrison's was, really active. But he was looking at you as, 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 the next, as the next crop of famous actors that also has an ethic of... of Let's get it right. And Harrison's all about story too. Yeah. That's well, the Harrison's thing. one of the most one of the most recognizable faces in the world who's entertained us for 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 decades now. What Harrison was saying to me in that moment. Yeah. That's another moment I'll never forget. Me too. He said he said I need to pass you the torch. That was what he said. That's right. Meaning can you take this baton in this relay? I have gone Harrison was basically saying, I've gone so hard and so fast into this, and I really feel like we've, we've made real progress, but I need to pass this torch to you now. Can you carry it? And I said, with absolute conviction, steadfast conviction, I looked at him and I said, absolutely. Now, what I didn't, recognize or know that I was going to do was rather than just take the baton from Harrison and run with it under the umbrella of CI, I went and started the Ann Summerhalder Foundation out of sheer, actually, anger because of what happened. And people always say, why did you start this? You know, it is a trippy thing. And this is going to sound really controversial. And I'm going to sound kind of like an asshole for saying it are ungrateful. If you ever want to change the world, yeah. don't start a nonprofit. <laughs> start a for-profit yeah. that feeds the nonprofit or the necessary nonprofit yeah. initiatives. Couldn't agree with Not you. Not even more. initiatives. Screw initiatives. Initiative just means it's a thought. Fund the action of an organization, but through a for-profit. I couldn't agree with you more. And I learned that the hard way. And in no. a very expensive way. And I learned that. Um, I learned that in Washington. And you know, 
You know who taught me that? Who? This guy, very few people know, his name's Barack Obama. <laughs> and another guy um, who went on to become one of the leading on energy envoys in the world, a guy named Amos Hochstein, who is a very dear brother of mine and was a board member of ISF but had to leave uh, to go uh, work for Secretary Clinton at the time um, as the undersecretary, uh, general, sec a, a general secretary of international energy security, which is an insane job. But those two guys reminded me, while it's amazing to work in the nonprofit sphere, you're just going to be an island unto yourself. That's right. Because there's only so much of a resource pool as far as financing that you can get. That's so right. rather than people collaborating and saying, let's share all the money that we're getting. Nope. You shut your doors. Now you write grants, which is great, but you're insular in your mission. And I do call it a mission to raise money because raising money is a literal mission. You mean you're like SEAL Team 6. You know what I mean? You've got yep. to go in and you've got to extract funds. So it's been the most phenomenal lesson, but going back to it, story. What is the story? The most successful companies were built on story. That's right. The most successful television shows are built on story. That's right. The most successful albums are built on story. Therefore, the ocean renaissance and the, and like you put it, in the, which is so brilliant, in the age of the algorithm, is going to be about us building story around the greatest fight of our lives. And during, when we were shooting Years of Living Dangerously, James Cameron, I quote him all the time, and I was so, I'd said this to him a million times, how grateful I am for him bringing this up. This is the greatest challenge of our lives. This is the greatest story of our lives. Mm. Climate disruption in regards to ocean or land or air is not about saving polar bears, it's not about saving whales, though I love both of those animals. It's about saving our own asses. Yeah. Conservation and sustainability is about saving our own asses because we've screwed it up. Yeah. You it's know, crazy. The, yeah. The story, you know, it sounds simple, but it's, and it is simple, but it's fundamentally important. And the, when, you know, Harrison was uh, involved when I was working at Conservation National, he was on the board and kind of the ocean was kind of his little pro, his program. Right. And the first time that I put out our ocean strategy to him, which laid out, you know, the problems with the ocean acidification, overfishing, habitat destruction, then the solution sets and all that, I was, you know, I was all excited about it. And he said, he said, Greg, this is great. He says, but what's the story? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's when I understood. And that takes us back to the campfire of 100,000 years ago. That's how we're made to operate. We're made to operate. Is to tell stories that get people's attention, mm -hmm. have a beginning, have a middle, have an end. And, you know, that's really, I think, the, 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 the challenge of our time, especially with the, back to the algorithm, with this massive amount of information that's now just, just flooding our, our minds and our airways. We need to isolate, find the stories that will communicate with people. Because everybody, in my experience, Ian, I don't know about you, but I find with the exception of people that are really just fundamentally bad people, most people want to do the right thing if they only knew what it was. Right. And it didn't cost them much money. And it 
doesn't cost them, you know, much money. Yet. Or it's, any money. Or, or any money. That's right. Right. So, you know, communicating that, I think, is what, what you excel at and what you have a platform for now. You know, or not now, but you've had it for a while and you've been executing it for a while. Another thing about you is you're the real deal in terms of, you know, I, I deal with a lot of celebrities, a lot of people that are high profile and it's only a select few that actually are, the, are willing to, to do the work, you know, to, to, to go on that dive like you did down into the habitat and promote that, to spend the time that you're doing with me now to be the co-creator of this, of this podcast series. Now, you're also, uh, your credentials include the UN ambassador for biodiversity, right? Or what, Environment. Environment, UN the ambassador. UNEP. Yeah. Now, congratulations um, on that. That's not easy to get. Thanks, man. You know, I we're all incredibly grateful to the UN. Mm -hmm. When I tell people, again, this is about story. When I tell people that I work for with the UN, they half of them go, "Oh wow," and half of them go. Oh, yeah. It's literally split down the middle. Yeah. And because any big global organization, especially that's funded primarily through governments, moves a certain way. With us in this show, we're very nimble. We can move up. We can be here. We can be in Kiribati tomorrow. Well, be a little bit difficult yeah. tomorrow, but the following day. <clears throat> My work with the UNEP has been... Um, it's been liberating, it's been fascinating, and it's been incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And I want to inject again story and find ways to get the engagement from the populace to appreciate the UN more because they're, they, I don't think any of us recognize what it takes to govern and what it takes to govern and create change on a global scale. Mm -hmm. Because, and this is what I've said a million times to the UN, I said this um, to the powers that be in some of the highest chambers of the executive branch of government in this country. Um, to think, to act global, to think global, you have to act local. Grammatically, that's not correct, because locally would be the adverb you would use. But to think globally, you have to act mm -hmm. locally, right? You have to. Therein lies a massive strategic issue, because if you govern from here, technically you have governance over the local, but local doesn't always want to just listen to the big kahuna. Yep. So how do we empower communities? I mean, every community to have that star storyteller activist, right? Not even activist, because you want a doist, right? Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. doist, the one that gets things going. Well, education's a big one, but that education has to, and I'm looping this back around to exactly what we were talking about, that education has to come from one place. It's not books, it's not lectures, right. it's experience. It's experience, that's the best. So yeah. how do we afford, how do we build the, sustainable financial revenue models that get young people yep. into experiential learning programs yep. 
that just are going to just come out of the thin air. Well, we've got to build them. We've got to create them. That's what we've been, that's what we've been working on for years with ISF. And it costs a lot of money. But the idea what you're doing is, is that people don't recognize. And this is where I, this is the only reason that we're actually having this conversation. I get to do this show with you is because the youth of the world watched a television show that I happen to be one of the leads of. That's the only reason. It's not you, because I can... You were the star of the show. It's, it's not because I can speak well yeah. or I've traveled around the world. I was on television, man. That's why we're having this conversation. Young people. The brilliance of that, why I'm so grateful for that, is what I learned was... <laughs> because we always talk about natural resources, yep. right? When I was in Seattle with you, Actually, that's where you introduced me to um, Jared Diamond, too, yep. which was like, I'll never forget that. Yeah, we'll do some stuff with him here in we LA. Have, yeah. That's just so yep. cool that we have him. He's on the same page with on us. On our right show, here. and that yep. we're like, you guys, you're aligned with all these amazing men and women, but women and men, but I can't wait to be. When you, when, so when we, I mean, when you guys developed the Healthy Ocean Index, right? Right. It was amazing. And Harrison's right. Where's the story? How do you get that into the story, right? You know, there's three things that are coming out of this, Ian, and this is really what I like about the conversation is that I'm, I'm learning, you know, you and I talk all the time, but I'm learning through this podcast talk, three things. Story, really critically important. Second thing is business and nonprofit and for-profit. You know, there's been a transformation in the business thinking in the world, and it's called, you know, impact companies mm -hmm. impact or, investing well yeah i guess it's two things one's impact which is a company that's like the activity of the company is good for the planet and right. it makes money right right and that that's that's a perpet that's like a perpetual energy machine right if you're making money mm -hmm. and it's good for the planet man it's going to just keep going right so that's a new it's a new genre really and then the big boys that have been around for a long time uh, are all changing right. and they're sustain yeah they're because of consumer behavior and consumer demand right so there's this this shift now and i'm, and I'm starting to go to these uh these uh these events now for impact companies that resemble a non-profit conservation fundraisers mm -hmm. <laughs> you get people in the room who want to learn about the company whatever it may be uh and right. they want they want to invest in the company and they're so excited because by investing in the company they're going to save the planet because the company's doing good things and they're going to make money. <laughs> triple bottom line is right. the future the of business. Triple bottom line is the People, future. People, planet, profit. And that the old philanthropy model of, you know, people giving excess money to to operate a, a worthy venture, it's good when it's never going to go away, but we need to translate things into the business world. And right. the third thing is to the UN. Now I want to just pause on that for a second. Because it reminds me of that famous Winston Churchill quote where he said, democracy is the worst form of government in the entire world except for all the rest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, of course, what he meant is that it's flawed, of course, but what, it, it's, the, it's what we got. And right. we've got we to work to improve it. And I would right. say that, <laughs> and I would say that, that the U.N., you could translate it over there, is the worst form of government to coordinate all these well, 187 countries. I don't know it's how many insane. Currently, is the worst form of, of, of coordination to, to get everybody on the same page and, and except for all the rest. What else except, do we have? Right? What else do we have? Well, we have business is the other thing, but it's not 
the same as the UN. So you need the UN, and we've we've we got to you know, and, I, and I'm a I a player in it. I'm not an ambassador like you. That's quite a, a well, august but it, role. But, but the I UN go, needs you a lot I more than they the need me. Conferences and all that stuff. So those are the three things that have really popped, and I'm I'm really impressed at your 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 clarity on these things. And uh, you know, I also remember something else about. Uh, that dive that we did with down to see Fabian it was back when we were just getting to know each other, and we were up on the deck of the boat. We had a lot of time. Remember, we had a lot of downtime because mm -hmm. the the habitat, the underwater habitat, is seven miles offshore, and we were talking about. I won't mention the name on the show. But we were talking about somebody else we both knew, who had some celebrity in their career. They'd gotten right. you know, and it had gone to their heads. I mean, they started believing the stuff people were telling them every right. day. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> and we were like dissecting this person. And then it struck me. I stopped for a second. I said, hey, well, hang on, Ian. I said, you're way more famous than the person we're talking about. How come that didn't happen to you? Ah, <laughs> Do you remember this? It's called humility. I no, do. No, you said, I'll never forget it. You said, without missing a beat, you just sort of said, oh, that's easy, Greg. You said, I'm from a working class family in Louisiana. Um, I, I got lucky. You know, you had some breaks right. to, to, get you, right. to get you where you were. And you recognized that you were in a position to continue your acting career and, and have influence. And you said, I work on it every day, Greg. Every and day. You said, I work on my, my ethical environmental agenda every day. And you work on your, your acting every day. You, I think you mentioned to me you had a coach that you... That you uh, yeah, I mean, at that time, I was flying... I was shooting all week, literally I shot all week, 60 to 80 hours a week on set. Yeah, and even here- And I would fly to LA every yeah. weekend to take the next script and basically work and break it down with my coach over a Saturday and a Sunday and sort of injecting um, bits of publicity and stuff here and there. And I was, I was being a good consumer for sure. I was burning through more carbon than I could ever. I mean, I was doing about 90 flights a year about 80 commercial and about 10 private yeah. a year. And that level of, let's call it movement, um, it was dizzying, but I didn't know another way to make a total commitment to both the activism environmental side and recognizing that without the success and story and, and, and I guess doing this story well, not only if you're going to do something, do it 110%, but how do you find two things that you can't live without that both have to have 110%? Well, the reality of it is, is that's, why the old that's where the old adage of burning the candle at both ends comes from. And when you're 30, you know, I did this between 30 to 38. You can do it in your 30s. Yeah. I'm 40 now. I can't do it from 40 to 48. Yeah. I've got a child, I'm going to have more kids in my life, but my, my, your body can't physically take it. And I'm glad I hit it hard at that moment. And now yeah. it's about taking that foundation, and I don't mean the literal foundation, I mean the foundation that you and I have built, and now building upon that yep. what we hopefully can put together between the public governing bodies of the world, the UN, and the corporations yeah. 
that are going to fund this through sustainable right. consumer and regenerative regenerative yep regenerative farming yep on land and regenerative aqua farming yep in the sea can change the world not only can they drive the world's financial markets but they can drive the largest renaissance and regeneration of our great resources in the history of the world. Because at this point where we've gotten to, and you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, the most conservative estimates right now, right? So we're looking at, in the next 50 years, 36% of all species on Earth will be extinct. And that's the conservative estimates, right? Mm -hmm. Even at 36%, and a lot of scientists say it's actually more like 50. If half of all, almost half of all species will be extinct in 50 years, then it'll be the greatest mass extinction since the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. So this generation is technically generation extinction. This is the generation that can literally stand in front of this train and slow it down mm -hmm. or stop it completely, or they can watch it go by. And we will literally, in our lifetime, watch the greatest mass extinction since the dinosaurs. That is not acceptable. That's not an acceptable story that I want to hear. So I say we write the fucking script that changes that. And that's what I'm so excited to do, but in the times where my wife and my baby are sleeping and it's 11 o'clock at night and I know this kid's going to get us up at six, I'm sitting there trying to write this story. And, but, you know, again, and I say this over and over and over and over again, because I was on a TV show, a lot of young people watched it. And what governments, corporations, corporations know this, but governments, educators, Nonprofits, they don't recognize one thing. And all the high net worth individuals, they don't recognize one important thing. When you want to talk about resources, our greatest untapped natural resource in the world is kids. That's right. That's absolutely right. And why we wouldn't invest in their future. I don't mean a little bit here and there. Why we wouldn't invest in getting together the greatest, most philanthropic, smartest, high net worth people in the world and those corporations to build experiential learning facilities for young people. Because when you do that, you build smart, educated, compassionate, reverent, grateful consumers. It's and empower Consumer. And voters. And voters. <laughs> yeah. Empowered consumers change the face of business and therefore will change the face of climate disruption. Period. End of story. End of story. That's literally what it is. That's. Uh, I think that makes. Yeah. It's like, it's so simple that it's scary. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, when you're sometimes you're just like, where's my wallet? Where's my, where's my wallet? Yeah. <laughs> and then my wife goes. It's right there, honey. <laughs> you grew up connected to the ocean, and I can see the effect it's had on you. It's, it's, it's directing you now. How do we do that with kids today that don't have those 
those segues don't have, don't don't go out their backyard with oyster shells and fish right there. What do we? How do we? How do we get? How do we do this, Ian? Right. I mean, you know, like we were talking about, there are kids in Long Beach that live a mile from the ocean and they've never been in the ocean. That's right. How do we get? Again, for me, it's going to take an incredible amount of organization to basically get the right people in line to educate and empower but inspire young people and you know i've been doing i've been looking down like the the nickelodeon roster i was like who what you know watching these young people what is who is the next you know i played this guy named damon salvatore who's the next guy kid girl woman who is the next person that is going to have that role yeah that i can go to and empower but at the end of the day again how do here's the question we all want to ask ourselves whether you're in brazil or in kuwait city or dayton ohio how are we going to build leaders that come from the favelas of sao paulo the ghettos of Kuwait City, the castles outside of Detroit. How are we going to build leaders out of these areas? Which is, so the model I've been creating that's keeping me up at night with ISF is I went home and I just bought a shit ton of property all over. My wife buys property that makes us money. I buy property that costs us money. <laughs> I bought about a, a little over a mile, 5,800 feet of this meandering, beautiful bayou that I grew up on. And the idea was to build a, a camp, a facility, a place that you could, whether to use it for corporate retreats, to take executives and put them on the bayou and... You're drinking reishi cacao ceremonies during the day and you're drinking bourbon on the bayou in the evening. But yeah. you're blasting through really important stuff. But the idea was, when you talk about kids and those kids in Long Beach have never been to the ocean. When I talk to youth, right? When I ask a young kid, this is the first thing I always say, what is it that makes you tick? What is it that makes the sun come up and go down two times before you ever even realize time elapsed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is it a scalpel? Is it a computer terminal? Is it a microscope? Is it a telescope? Uh, is it a drafting board? Is it something in the STEM field? You know, science, technology, yep. engineering, math. What is it, right? A lot of these kids don't know, you know? When you take a child and you put them in a, a really cool sensory program, right, where... I'm actually building one for my daughter right now. You watch the brain light up, right? Yeah. But you've got to inspire that brain to light up. So what, we, what I'm designing right now and I'm, I'm trying to fund is a building that is an epicenter of brain excitement mm. and inspiration. Initially, I wanted to build it sort of the way the Guggenheim is in New York, sort of a spiral. Now I'm realizing it's, it's just it's too expensive to build that level of architecture. But in the same sense, but square, 
It goes up, 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 up. And yep. you can walk up it, right? And go up and around it. And you put stations, right? Yep. Whether it's a microscope, a telescope, a drafting board, computer terminals, a science, technology, engineering, math, everything. And I'll make this short. When I was a kid, we used to do these things called lock-ins. It was at the skating rink. And it's kind of crazy. You couldn't do it now, but it was chaperoned by teachers, people that worked there. And at 7 o'clock at night, your parents would drop you off. And then they would close the doors and lock them. And they'd come back and pick you up at 7 in the morning. 12 hours of these kids running around. We were high as a kite on Coca-Cola and Twizzlers <laughs> and shit. And kids are... They're skating, they're fighting, some of them are kissing in the corner, others are playing chess and puzzles. I mean, these kids just went nuts. Yeah. Now imagine that environment, but structurally in a building together, where as you go up to the top of this big deck cupola thing up top where the, all the astronomy instruments and stuff are, you lock 50 or 100 kids in there, right? But you light their brains up on blue-green algae and good cane sugar and green tea yep. and really amazing natural edible stuff. And each station is manned by an undergrad or grad student, whether it's from Stanford, MIT, LSU, Tulane. All of a sudden, you've got these young kids that have the ability to go in and experience. This is what I'm going to be building all over the world. That is an experiential learning platform. Mm -hmm. And that's how you build leaders out of the favelas of Sao Paulo. That's how you build leaders out of Kuwait City or Dayton, Ohio or Mexico City. Well, I love it. That's how you do it. I love it. Ian. That's the only that, way that's I That's a vision. See it. That's, that's, a, that's a realistic, you know, connected vision. And uh, uh, a lot of people don't have the answers. You know, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about today, you know, I... I there's other parts of the series, and you and I have talked about the problems that we face in the ocean, you know, whether it's plastic or overfishing and all right. that stuff. We all know that's happening. And the exciting part about what's happened in my career over the last couple of decades is we've documented the decline, mm -hmm. but we've also come up with a toolbox to reverse that decline. Right. And that's what's optimistic about it me yes today is that we we know what we didn't know what to do 20 years ago you know right it was like the the the, the plane was crashing and we had no idea how to pull it out of the out of the out of the crash dive we're still headed for a crash dive but we know what to do now well we, we have greg stone <laughs> that's very kind of you Doctor and we've stone, got ian Summerholder and and others you know we've that, got this group of people yeah we got this group of people so you know i'm i'm optimistic and um and i think uh what I liked about what you said is, you know, you basically said we need to give firsthand experience, empirical uh, experiences to those kids that didn't maybe have the chance to grow up like you did on the bayou or right. like uh, Christine did them? on an atoll or, or right. others, you know. And I had, you know, I, I grew up in Boston, right? And I, I started swimming in the ocean at Nantasket Beach when I was seven years old. So in a lot of ways, that was my connection as well. It got me going in that direction. Right. So... Um, Thank you for that vision. Thank you for what you're doing in Louisiana. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your work at the UN and your friendship. And um, you're the real deal, man. Brotherhood, brother. Brotherhood. Yeah, you're, you're the, the real, real deal. deal. And you know we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do a lot. I know the world's gonna be better because of you. And um, ditto. 
thanks for you know this is our first one-on-one now we're going to be, our first we're gonna be co-hosting a lot we're going to be co-hosting together, a lot of these but i wanted to take a deep dive into ian Sommerhalder and I'm so thankful uh, we did stayed a little bit away from you know your successful career because i think you probably get that a lot in other interviews this was another side of you yeah and the next one we do is going to be me interviewing you oh that's because we also want to get we also need the other side of it because oh, you're the one man. asking the questions. I'm getting and, the cam- all the camera crew. Everybody's nodding their head now. Yeah. And all the right. stuff that we need to get is that comes out of here okay. and here all right. out of Dr. Right. Stone. Right. We'll do that. I'll you do know? that. We need to do that. But uh, but anyway, this is a thank you very much. Thank you, listeners and uh, thank and you, watchers. Man. Thank you, listeners yeah. and watchers. <laughs> Listen, this is this is something that's incredibly important to us, and not just in this group. Um, but to the other guests who are going to be coming on the show, we have incredible guests on this show. Guests that you wouldn't think of, guests that typically don't do interviews uh, like this. Our goal for this is to strip it down. Human to human. But science, I'll say that again, my summer's growing. The goal of this for us is to strip it down, right? Human to human. Scientist to entertainer, entertainer to scientist, surfer, journalist. I think Pulitzer Prize, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I mean, like, these are the brains and minds that you want sitting together, but in a stripped down, personal way. It's to instill hope. It's not to instill fear, although... We think we're all we're all pretty scared, <laughs> but we're not acting out of fear. We're acting out of hope. We're acting out of science. We're acting out of logic. And the three, I think the three biggest things is something that we talk about all the time, and, and with Christine as well. There are three basic, very important things missing in the world right now, not just in our youth, but in the echo chambers of not only our universities and our governments, but in the biggest corporations and schools in the world, right? There are three things you can't teach. There are three things you have to show. So how do we start showing them? And this is a question I want you to ask yourself. Those three things that are missing in society are compassion, reverence, and gratitude. And with those three things, we can literally change humanity and its, and its connection to the world We can bridge the gap between the disconnect of humanity and our air, land, and sea. Because a very dear friend and mentor of mine, I'm sure someone you've come across many times, uh, Deepak Chopra, really, when I met him when I was, I think, 30, reminded me of one thing that's so crazy. And he asked me a simple question, which is what I always ask someone. What is the environment? And when you ask someone what the environment is, they typically say, well, I mean, it's, you know, the natural world that surrounds you. And I offer up this one little piece where the environment isn't separate of us. It's actually the exact same biological process. Mm. It's why coral and trees are identical carbon copies of the human lung. There's coral in the, in the ocean that is identical to the human brain. So if you can think about this for one second. If you think about that the trees of the world are our lungs, well, if you cut them and destroy them and burn them, you're effectively taking away the organism's ability to breathe. 
If you imagine the oceans, rivers, and streams are the cardiovascular systems of the world carrying all the vital nutrients that the organism needs, if you dam them and pollute them and destroy them, you are effectively creating a situation where the organism can't transport all the vital nutrients it needs to all the organs. And what ends up happening is the organism dies. So when you stop looking at the environment as something separate, but actually together, what we do to the planet, we do to ourselves. And that sort of, you can't get any, I don't think it gets any simpler. So that is something I'm excited to share and all of these guests, and eventually we're going to do a serious deep dive um, into Dr. Stone's <laughs> brain and heart. And this is, um, this is something that I think we're embarking on that's going to just be magical. That was a very inspirational summary there, Ian. Thank you for that. Um, and thank I like you, to look brother. at it as that the fate of humanity and the fate of the ocean are the same. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's what we're about. And we're going to, you know bring the solutions forward. Well, it's like and you and Sylvia, Dr. Sylvia Earle said, what did she say to me? We had a toast and it was uh, right before we all went to sleep because we were exhausted. And Sylvia looked at us, Dr. Earle looked at us and said, you know, you guys are going to be in the water in about six hours. And yeah. we went, okay, let's go to sleep. But she, she gave me the final toast, our nightcap. And she goes, Ian, just remember this. Without blue, there is no green. Okay, that's... <laughs> And that was brilliant. That's a great, that's a great landing point for us, brother. Without Thank blue, there is no without green. Without blue, there is no green. It was brilliant. <laughs>